Welcome back to another episode of Berluminati, the podcast where we drink beer and talk about conspiracy theories. I'm John. This is Jake. Uh, and this is part two of our social media mental health crisis COVID exploration thing. Thingy. Thingy. Perfect. Talking about all that is too much. It's way too much to cover in one episode. I don't know what we were thinking. It's massive. Well, it's not one episode. It's two episodes. But right. it's a lot. This is a lot to talk about. But before we talk about that, let's get into the beer. Jake, what are you drinking? So today up, it is from Trophy Brewing, which is hands down one of Raleigh's best breweries, uh, at least one of the most prolific. They Agree. Uh, definitely put out some crazy stuff. Um, they're probably most known for Trophy Wife. The, yeah, uh, they have a handful of beers that stay on all the time. Everywhere. And like, they're good. I actually don't love their permanent taps. I like the one-offs and the weird stuff. Like right towards the beginning of summer, I'm always like, when is a yard of the month, which is a cream ale that I love? Yeah. When's a yard of the month going to come out? Because I'm (laughs) waiting for that shit. So pre-COVID, they used to do all these crazy like weekend festivals and stuff. Yeah, they'd have pop-ups and crap like that. Very cool. And they've got a pizza shop over on uh is that on glenwood i think no so they have the maywood which is where the brewery is and right it's like their tap room and that's where they do the pop-ups and stuff and then they have the more it's either martin street or morgan street it's somewhere downtown morgan like street. back there near yeah, where charlie there. good nights and all that is yep and that is where they have the tap room and uh pizza and the pizza is pretty good and i think there's a third one now but i don't know where it is I'm not sure either. I, I know they bought the place next door and they're doing some stuff there. Yeah. I've um, also heard the pizza is like really, really good. But I went towards the beginning of when the pizza one opened and I did not like it. No? Not at all. I didn't like the atmosphere. It was early days. Like pizza. Yeah. But so many people have come back and been like, bro, you got to go back. You got to try it again. And I just have it. Well, and then COVID hit and I was like, oh, yeah. well, fuck me. Can't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was there around this time last year and, and had a pizza and it was pretty, it was pretty good. Yeah. It was it was, you know, for Raleigh, it was a pretty good pizza. Yeah, yeah I have my I have my pizza go tos. So far, trophies not Lily's. Lily's is the pizza go to. Lily's, I like. Um, I've been going to. Uh, so I went to North Carolina State University, and right across the street from the, uh, this thing called the Bell Tower, essentially, yeah. Oh, yeah. right in that area. It's not right across the street. It's like halfway between the library and the Bell Tower. There's this little pizza, real shitty pizza. Spot, but it's called Slice of New York Pizza. It used to be called I Heart New York Pizza, and it's lit. They make this uh, lasagna pizza where it's okay. basically like slices of meatball, mozzarella. Um, That's crazy. So, well, let me start over. So, the, it's got <laughs> it's got like the pizza sauce on it, and then it has mozzarella on it, and then on top of that, it's slices of uh, meatball, and then like huge chunks of ricotta, and then on wow. top of that, there's like meatball marinara. Is there pasta in it? Like lasagna? No. Okay. Okay. No. It's just the the theory of layering is what makes it the lasagna. Yeah. And it, okay. it's so good. And they're the place that they do a gluten-free night or something? Um, so uh, I Heart New York or Slice of New York Pizza has a gluten-free pizza that's available all the time. Okay. And yeah. you can put their specialty toppings on that gluten-free topping. And my wife, she's gluten-free. She loves it. Um, there's another pizza spot people rave about it's called um oakwood pizza box and it's downtown like near peace college yes and yeah. um they do a gluten-free pizza thursdays that's what i'm thinking of um yeah. i personally am not that 
enthused by them. Sure. Um, but people love it. You know, I don't want to say anything bad about them. They're great. Yeah. But, you know, I, there's other pieces I like better, to be honest. And, okay. And completely roundabout back to the beer. Yeah. Well, I mean. You got to go pizza. If you're it's, eating it's, pizza, you're drinking beer. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And, and Raleigh surprisingly has good pizza. Yeah. Know, for, and, yeah. and really great beer. So, shocker. And, and, you know, I moved here from Los Angeles and I was constantly surprised about how great the beer scene was here. I didn't expect it at all when yeah. I moved here. And consistent i mean even for somebody who went to san diego all the time and saw the san diego scene which is out of control here is competing very very healthily yeah i think i got a little bit uh spoiled because my old house uh was within walking distance of the trophy brewery on maywood and so that was like my local bar that's just where i went all the time and so like there's a bunch of other breweries in raleigh I have thoughts about them, <laughs> but the to me like trophy hands down the best brewery in Raleigh, and then uh, I mean within North Carolina the Asheville breweries they're just so good. Oh yeah, and now we have uh, a new burial out by uh, Durham. The, well, no, no the it's Morgan here. Street it's a Morgan Street Food Hall. Yeah, yeah. They've got the there's burial. a High Wire or something. Yes, in Durham. in Durham they have a High Wire, yeah. which and, High Wire is pretty great. Yeah, they do cool like. Uh, experimental stuff yeah and the sierra vada auxiliary brewery is in mills river which i still we got to go down to that it's sick yeah so back to trophy because uh i'm drinking a trophy pumpkin spice milky way which milky way is one of their standard porters uh which are stouts stouts that they have going on yeah and uh, it's pretty consistent i've had it regularly it's nice it's creamy it's it's a it's a good stout it's you know it's uh serviceable it's out there the uh, the pumpkin spice is a good addition, you know, for this time of year. Obviously, um, I know you're not a huge fan. I I'm into not it. a huge fan. Yeah, I'm into it, but I don't think I could do more than one of these. I think I'd be capped out. Yeah. Usually, I'm a big stout guy. I could go I could go deep on a couple of stouts, but the pumpkin spice, eh, I, th- I think I'm about at one on those. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's from Trophy. It's coming in at five point five percent. Uh, kind of a nice dark theme on the uh, on the can with a bunch of pumpkins, and uh, technically it's a salted caramel sweet stout. Um, you can definitely taste the caramel when you drink it. It's it's very kind of heavy on that. Yeah. Um, I would say the caramel is almost as strong as the pumpkin on it. Uh, but it's definitely there in the aftertaste. Yeah. So I drank one of these earlier this week because it's a special edition. So this beer came out at the time we're recording this last Friday, and um. I had a friend go grab a couple. She brought me two. I split one with somebody earlier this week. And like, I already know that I don't <laughs> really like Milky Way. But when she was like, there's a special edition pumpkin spice version coming out. I was like, all right, I have to at least try it. Um, and yeah, I mean, to me, I'm not a big stout fan. There's certain stouts I love. Like yeah. um, the Samuel Smith's organic chocolate stout That's is a, a banger. Stout. Like yeah. I'm all for that. Um I already don't love Milky Way, uh, just the standard one. So I kind of knew I was in for one I wasn't going to be in love with with this one. And I mean, personally, I was right. Um, But the one thing that I do want to say is like, so every so often, I don't know if I've said this on this show before already, but there's certain beers where I don't like the beer, but if you mix it with another beer, it magically yes, becomes we talked amazing. About this. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, we talked about it with big boss where yeah. I don't like yeah. bad penny or harvest time, but if you mix them, they're dope. It's the exact same thing with this. So I, can I see that. do not like Milky way at all. Um, but 
Trophy makes another beer, which is also just as dope. Um, that I also don't like by itself. It's a horchata porter. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. I can't remember what it is called right now. And for the last, like, two years, they haven't had Milky Way and the horchata porter out at the same time. Yeah. But when they do, if you mix Milky Way and that 50-50, it all of a sudden becomes this amazing beer that I love. And I'm yeah. like, and it's so I see, weird. I can see so, that. Yeah. So, like, to me, I wish I had a can of the horchata and I could mix them 50-50 with a pumpkin one and see what it does to it. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. Yeah. On on stout levels, like my two favorite stouts are uh the Yeti, the Great Divide Yeti Imperial. Uh it's the it's pic, big picture of Bigfoot on it. And uh the bourbon barrel one's the best. And then the other, there's a company, Super Speedway. Uh I think it's like Smith Brewery or something out of San Diego. And they make this really crazy heavy stout that is just like out of control, amazing. They only sell it in like wine bottles. Uh, okay. Big, big fan of that. Uh, yeah, they I do have, like the 22s or whatever. Yeah, I haven't seen it since I left LA, which is kind of disappointing. But but yeah, so this, uh, you know, the pumpkin spice, it's nice. This time of year, I'll, I'll, I'll have one. Or, yeah, you know, one. pumpkin beers are just hard. Yeah. Are you, a, are you a pumpkin spice person? Or are you going to go to like, are you a Starbucks pumpkin spice guy? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah? I love them. Yeah. yeah. Like, okay. So I used to go to Starbucks a lot and every like September I'd be like the pumpkin spice is going to come out soon. You're like waiting for it. Yeah. And then okay. they'd announce it like the Do last they send two emails? weeks of like, is that a thing? No, I'm, I mean, I'm not that into Starbucks, okay. but I would just like, you know, keep my eye out for it, commercials or whatever. And um, that's fair. I would always yeah. hold out. Like okay. I know that because the pumpkin spice latte typically comes out like middle of September, end of September. Sure. But yeah. I am not drinking one until the first of October. Like, okay. I, want, like yeah, I don't I know, that. just like on principle, like yeah. I don't want it. Yeah. My wife does, uh, she won't switch to red wine until she has this date in her head where it just happens and she switches. I don't oh, know. That's so weird. <laughs> she doesn't share it with me, but like at one, at one point, as soon as it starts to get cold, it's, it becomes red wine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, no stouts. It's good. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's not really my thing. I went a totally other way though. You did. And but, this is because I'm looking at, a Pop-Tart. So tell me about this. Okay. So this is also a trophy beer. We went two for trophy tonight. And it's also another special edition beer, which trophy does special edition beers all the time. But what this one is, it's called Tart Pop. And it is a raspberry pastry Weiss. So it's kind of like, I mean, it is a Weiss, but it's kind of like a Berliner. That's what it tastes like to me. Um, but basically, it's supposed to be a Weiss brewed with pastry and raspberry. And I mean, it literally has a picture of a pop tart with two raspberries. Same logo, same font. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like very uh, cartoony and shit. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I got to say, like, if you are into that kind of like Weiss Berliner type fruity sour tart, not as sour as like a sour. There's no salt in it. Um, but if you like that like sourish tart, sweet kind of jam, this is a banging. Yeah, it's a banger. It's so good. <laughs> um like slightly better than the uh gose sour we were that that was the the uh, tea yeah the, the tea weird, we were drinking uh, berry tea <laughs> the stone berry tea yeah this is significant to me it's significantly better than that to me i mean i am not a huge goza person so i'll tell you up front sure chances are i'm not gonna love it um but i do love berliners i do love weisses i like stuff with fruit in it i don't know call me what you want but this is good so the first handful of sips that I got out of it was very pastry forward. 
I mean, it was like I was like biting into a piece of Pop-Tart, but with no filling in it. Cool. And then after that, like the pastry would kind of settle down and the raspberry would just start like punching you. Okay. And so like the last three quarters of this beer has been all like just like super tart raspberry with like that little bit of like creamy pastry-ishness to it. But then it's like really tart, really sweet, really like refreshing kind of. But then I'm also getting kind of lit on it. Like it's 5.9%. Fair. Would you, and here's, here's a weird question. I, I'm very into those. Would so. you turn this into a float? L- like put soft serve in it or like or, ice cream or ice cream or whatever you choose for a float. Uh, you know, I'd never thought about that, but you, I mean, you probably could. Yeah. I mean, cause I know stouts like that's a thing. Like, Oh yeah. Like stout yeah. floats. I forgot that that was a thing. Yeah. Like this, the, the pumpkin spice, I would definitely drop a, a scoop of vanilla into this and, and just eat it up. That'd be good. Be, like some vanilla be bean ice cream on top of it. Yeah. That'd be great. That actually sounds like it would be good. Yeah. Like that might turn that into a beer that I would enjoy more. I could see that. I would be yeah. worried that that would turn this into a beer. I would enjoy less. It could ruin it. Yeah. Cause I would think the about lactose like, maybe like might mess it up. I don't know. You know, I don't, I mean, you never know until you try. Yeah. But like, you know, now I'm thinking like drop a scoop of ice cream into a PBR, probably messing that PBR up, you know? Well, PBR doesn't taste like a raspberry pop tart. That's true. That is but true. I don't know. I could see it with this maybe. It could, it could work. Cause this isn't, you can, it's, you can definitely tell it's maybe sherbet. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe like a sherbet or like a, like a, like a, like a, like pop. a raspberry sherbet. Yeah. Like a but raspberry sherbet pop. in the raspberry beer. That could probably be pretty amazing. That'd be good. Yeah. All right. We might have to take care of that. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> well, moving on from the beers. Um, so as we said, I think towards the end of last episode, we really didn't cover that much conspiracy type stuff last time. Really, I think that one was more a little bit of exposition, a little bit of setup. Definitely. And now we're really getting to where the conspiracy part starts with not really about COVID, because there's a lot we could talk about with the conspiracy about COVID. And let's not run down that path. But what path. we can talk about is more the social media portion. Absolutely. And I think that's a definitely good distinction to make because you could go down a COVID rabbit hole as many, many people endlessly have. And it is interesting to talk about all that stuff. But I think what we spent some time setting up last time was some base ground information about where social media companies are, what they're doing, how they're interacting with people, and how it can be sometimes beneficial, sometimes toxic. Um, and the the reality that brings it down and what we're actually discussing this time is what is the conspiracy there? So if we're asking, is this something done on purpose or is this something done accidentally for profit? So our are companies in the search of profit and in the search of filling their own pockets and making their shareholders happy, are they creating situations that are bad for people? Or is this, from the beginning, set up as a way to isolate people, to make people um, more susceptible to things, make people read into things differently? Um, you know, And as soon as we involve something like COVID where we're all going into lockdown and we're basically at home with our families right. and on our phones, What's the next step there? What are we looking at? Right. So I think, yeah, I think that's definitely an interesting place to start. So I think we kind of look back a little bit towards the beginning of COVID. There was this really interesting article that came out in Forbes and 
the headline of this article is immediately very interesting to me. So it yeah. says, um, so this was published April 6th of 2020. So this was like a month right day. about the time yeah. lockdown was kind of starting or had just started. Um, it says, Americans are excessively eating, drinking, smoking pot, playing video games, and watching porn while quarantined. Fair. And, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, extremely fair. It's like you opened the veil and looked right. into my life before COVID. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now and, we don't have to go to an office for eight hours. So, yes, right. that is what, um, what is happening. Right. And so the way this article opens is with a tweet. And what this tweet basically uh, says is that if you come out of quarantine without either a new skill, starting something you have put off like a business, or come out of it with more knowledge, then... It's not about the quarantine or whatever. It's about the fact that you lack discipline. Right. And I just have, I've never agreed with sentiments like that. It's gross. And I don't, little, yeah, I don't agree to it here. Gross. And really what this article does is it kind of explores that a little bit, but it gives a bunch of projections about what they thought yeah. was going to happen over COVID. And so at the time this article came out, 10 million people had filed for unemployment since the last week or two of March. And they were putting out essentially projections from the Federal Reserve that they thought nearly 50, mil, 50 five zero million yeah. people um, would lose their jobs or file for unemployment by uh, summertime. Right. Uh, and so now we are clearly past summertime. A little bit. Um, and, you know, I we didn't really look at those statistics I don't think, but that that can be an yeah. interesting thing we could go back and look at. Um, but what they address in here as well is like people, parents are frantically worried about making rent, paying their mortgages. They're worried about losing jobs. Parents are stressing over working from home, kids being out of school, educating from home, trying to work where right. their kids are home. Like how do they manage that? Um, since I have a very unique perspective on school that it's not daycare. <laughs> so if you have a kid, I mean, that sucks. That was your choice. So, but <laughs> I'm a little cynical there, yeah. but, um, you know, and I get that that's like a very, that's a diverse topic and I don't really think it's as clear cut as that, but yeah. I was just trying, you know, as whatever. someone with a kid, it's fair. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. As somebody without a kid, I'm just like, I mean, I don't know. Um, yeah. So basically the article just kind of goes through and asks these questions about, um, Alcohol sales were up like 55% um, in the last weeks of March. Um, buying uh, spirits like, cock, uh, like uh, you know, spirits, pre-mixed cocktail stuff Booze, yeah. uh, increased 75% over wow. the last okay. year, over that time the previous year. Uh, wine sales were up 66%. Beer sales were up 42%. Online alcohol sales went up 250% since this time last year. Probably curbside um, pickup and whatnot. yeah. So yeah. I think this, um, yeah, like marijuana dispensaries, uh, went their sales were up thirty two, not up thirty six million, but up to thirty six million dollars worth of legal weed sold it just in the month of March in Illinois. Like, I mean, we're talking about massive amounts of people being at home yeah. with essentially only work or yeah. kids or nothing to do. Yeah. Well, with somebody being laid off, I mean, it's it's kind of clear that like when you lay off a bunch of people, like you know, that's going to happen. I know every time 
not every time. It's only happened once that I've gotten laid off. I immediately yeah. went home and drank 12 beers. You know, yeah, not I 12 mean, at once, but like same. over the next couple of days, like it was kind of a depressing moment, you know? Yeah. Um, what else does this one say? It says, uh, so like Pornhub traffic was up 12%. 12? 12. I'm kind of surprised it's so low. Well, I mean, if you think about the number of people accessing those sites, add 12%. It's probably a massive amount of traffic. Yeah. 12% of a massive amount of traffic. And you got to probably think traffic. too, like if it's like dudes that are home with their wives, like their the wives are there. So Or kids probably, or something. I don't know. Yeah, It'd be interesting those, to see yeah. if they could know. Well, th- I don't think there's a way you could know the demographic of that. Um, but yeah, like the article just continues to go into more stuff, you know, past the Pornhub traffic. It talks about um, in March, consumers streamed... Uh, 156 billion minutes worth of content from stuff like Netflix, which was up 30% in streaming programming over last year. Wait, say that again. 156 billion minutes, 156 billion minutes of content were streamed in the U S during the week, during just the one week of March 16th of that was the week of lockdown. So March 16th. Yeah. Yeah. So just that one week. Wow. U S consumers streamed 156 billion minutes of content almost twice as much as the same time last year, 30% of which uh, was Netflix, uh, 20% of which was, uh, no, wait, I'm reading this wrong. 30% of that 156 billion minutes was Netflix. Okay. uh, Probably because Tiger King came out that week. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 20% of it was YouTube. Okay. uh, And then the rest was like other stuff. And then the article just kind of goes on to say some other stuff. And that's essentially all it does. But... Remember Tiger King lockdown where we were all just kind of like oh, that was like with, chilling the, with Joe, Joe and like yeah alive. Tiger King lockdown was the best because that, at yeah. that point we still thought this is going to be like two weeks it'll be good we just so hang much out hope. in our houses we watch Tiger King we watch that weird dating show that came out that same time where they go in the pods oh yeah yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah there's a handful of other shows that came out at the time and we were still all like hopeful and happy that. Uh, lockdown was going to be short. COVID wasn't going to be this thing. We were going to kill yeah. the virus. We were going to keep the curve flat. We were uh, making sourdough bread. People were like digging into that stuff. Yeah. Like there was still this like what we were going to achieve feeling with co- with like looking forward. Yeah. Not looking forward to it. But, but, like, but like with the lockdown coming. And then it raises a question of I don't think anybody really actually achieved any of that. I don't know. I, I mean, didn't. I didn't. I did. I, I did nothing as well. I mean, it was is the thing was it was like it was there it is. <laughs> it was March. It was like spring, a time of renewal and growth. And we were supposed to be doing these things. And yeah, if you care about stuff like, uh, uh, you know, astrology signs, there was all this stuff that was supposed to happen. And we were all supposed to like love life and do these things. And and people were like getting like sourdough yeast starters from their buddies. And there were all these news articles about hundred year old sourdough bread. Yeah. And man, none people of like happened. doing crafts and like, I'm going to yeah. start a business and learn a thing Planting and stuff like yeah. they were out front putting peppers in the ground. And uh, yeah, uh, that did not happen. It didn't no. persist. I think the unknownness to what came with the lockdown, like, because at first yeah. they had pitched it as this whole like two weeks to flatten the curve thing. Yep. And when we were what, like a week and a half into it, they pushed it out 
and then they were like, all right, it's going to be a month now. And then they yeah. pushed out again. And then they pushed out again. And then they just and stopped then, talking about it. Yeah. It was, yeah. It and like, then they, yeah, they just stopped saying anything because it had now implicitly become uh, indefinite. Yeah. And, and it, it was pretty fast. It was, you know, I remember, um, you know, my, my daughter's in a daycare school and, the, you know, where I was going and it was whatever the Friday before March 16th was, I was at the school and I was picking my daughter up and I was talking to the head of the school and her and I were having a discussion. She was like, yeah, I don't know what, you know, Wake County is going to do. And we haven't really had a talk about it. And I had been kind of going deep into uh, COVID research all the way back into like November. And like I had been talking to people about it and man, you could ask my wife about this on New Year's Eve. I was telling my wife that there was going to be like serious problems. And so we started going through this stuff and I was telling her, I was telling her like, listen, it's not going to be two weeks. Like this is going to be a big thing. And the, everybody was so hopeful. They were just like, yeah, let's do this. We're going to, we're going to shut it down. We're going to come out strong. We're going to write the novel that we always wanted to write. We're going to do the screenplay. And yeah, it just turned into the same old, like crushing American existential crisis that we all suffer through silently day to day. You know? I know. And it's like weird to look back to because that week of March 16th, um, <clears throat> that weekend is marked the last time that uh, my wife and I went out to dinner to eat. Where'd before, you go? Uh, we went to the Stanberry. Oh, yeah, the Stanberry. Yeah, that place is supposed to be amazing. Oh, dude, it's lit. So we go there for every birthday and anniversary. Cool. It's the best steak in Raleigh, deal. in my opinion. It's a great spot. But we go there every time. It's so has a great little atmosphere. It's a nice place. So like if I look back and I'm like, if I had to pick a spot to be like the last spot, a fancy night out where we got dressed up, we went out and yeah. had a nice dinner together, had some fancy pants drinks, had some, you know, it, we always have a great. good time. But that was the last time that we had yeah. been out to eat without, uh, for basically up until maybe two weeks ago. Wow. We okay. went out to eat again. It was like on a Monday at lunchtime nobody was at the place we went. I mean, nobody. Where'd you go this time? Um, that spot you told me about. That's um, downtown off of uh, P Street and the station. Oh, the station. Yeah, yeah with the we overhead. went there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That place is great. Yeah. yeah, we drove by there and I was like, how about we stop and grab some lunch? And yeah, their food's my pretty wife, good. We were just yeah. like, I, and it was like stress inducing because I was like, do little we bit, stop? Yeah. Do we do yeah. it? Do we not do it? I don't know. Like, this seems risky. The people that work there are a little intense too. Yeah, yeah so, and yeah. like, it was weird because we were like, we were wearing our mask to go in and then we were like, do we leave our mask on? Do we take our mask off? Do we need do to we put it outside? on? When the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We ate on their patio and like we, so we've eaten out one other time. Okay. Uh, and that, and that was last weekend and it was the same thing. We ate outside Yeah. and it was still weird. It was like, when do we put our masks on? Do we keep, you know, it's and a little then, weird. Yeah. And there's people all around us not wearing masks. Sure. They're supposed yeah. to be wearing masks. They're not wearing masks. They're not really enforcing it. Like, it, I don't know. And it was just very, it's like, it was like nice to be out, but it was stressful at the same time. It is. Yeah. It's, it's very strange. Like we, we were going to pharmacy where I picked up these fine beverages we're drinking tonight, some of them. And, uh, uh, we would go there because they have like a huge open patio area that is kind of like in an area where the wind blows through and stuff. I mean, yeah. you've, been, you've been back there many times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we would go back there and we'd sit at the, at the patio table at the far back and sit there and have one or two drinks and leave. Um, but actually drinking at a, I mean, actually eating at a place was totally different. It was, 
Yeah, I don't know. We did some to-go stuff, but we didn't really go to places. Yeah, like it was weird as the COVID lockdown developed because there was all these questions towards the beginning of what's safe and what's not safe. And there was a long time there where they didn't have enough information about it. And so now in October, we've essentially accepted uh, touch transmission is not really a thing. Food transmission is not really a thing. The airborne part is where you have to be worried about. And we've kind of accepted this wear a mask, yeah. wash your hands, everybody has hand sani, you know, like all of this kind of stuff like that, like stay six feet away, yeah. don't breathe towards me. I like I subconsciously hold my breath as I'm like right. walking past people, like weird stuff like that. But at that time, it's like we didn't know that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it was like a lot of takeout. And even taking out the takeout, I was like, do I need to wash my hands? Is yeah, there COVID yeah. on the clamshell of my... You have you to know, wipe this enchilada down. Like, yeah. yeah. It, it, I mean, it was the same thing with mail. Like we didn't know at the time. So it was like every time we would get mail or packages, like we didn't order anything from Amazon for a while. And when we would get mail, I would be like, do I need to take a Clorox wipe and wipe down the mail? Like, do we leave it outside? Like we were, I mean, we were leaving packages in our garage for three days, like weird shit. And it's like, we just didn't know. And like, well, there's no information. There was no, yeah, there was no guidance, which was a huge problem. There was no actual guidance on that stuff. Right. You know? And I, and I think, it's interesting because like we we did we did do a decent amount of takeout and like we would go to that to the one bottle shop and drink on their little patio. And I think we were kind of I felt like we were being way too nonchalant about it. Yeah. And then I would talk to my like sister in Florida who was just like, Yeah, I was at like TJR Fridays eating inside doing poppers. Like it's like what? <laughs> I mean like eating pop like no, I know. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. well, like, why would you be doing that? Yeah, exactly. Like, are you insane person? Uh, yeah, no. And they're just, yeah, they're just, there's some state, I mean, some states, I, a handful of states, seven or eight of them just never locked down and nothing happened. I, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, there are like, um, not Tennessee. Well, like Florida. Well, Florida, parts of Florida did knock down, lock down. We, we had a weird experience where, um, we drove down to see, um, my wife's stepmom in Florida in, um, in New Smyrna beach. And we were driving through. And when we got to the border, we pulled through. And the they, border like, of Florida, yeah, and Georgia, the, the Florida Georgia line. <laughs> and uh, we drove through, and they had everybody kind of pull off to the side. And uh, there was a guy waving everybody through. And the guy in front of us was in a um, Land Rover with New York plates. And they talked to him for a second, and they waved him off. And he went into this tent down the way a little bit where he clearly was taken out of his car and people were having a conversation with him. Yeah. And we pulled up, and we had we were in my wife's car. Was with, this like the travel ban stuff? Like the if you were coming from a certain state or going yeah, to a certain state? Yeah, it, it must state. have been somewhere around there. Cause we like, pulled I never up. experienced that because we didn't travel. Okay, yeah. So we pulled up after this New York truck that was taken off to another space okay and they asked where we were from and we said north carolina and they just waved us through without even blinking like oh, just just go on through like but new york even, but new york they sent them over into another tent and had some words with them you know yeah. so well they had horrible it was when there. all that was it was when new york was messed up like yeah, okay there were problems you know so it was it was interesting to see how you know florida i mean i grew up in florida i was i grew up in fort lauderdale since i was five years old so it's yeah it's I know all the problems in Florida. It's not like I have any illusions <laughs> Florida that Florida was a great superhero place. you're familiar with. Exactly. <laughs> so it's not like there's a, I have any illusions. So so to see them pull somebody from New York aside and be like, hey, buddy, wait a minute. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it was bizarre to watch all of that. And then on top of it to like 
what are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to be at? And, and, and that kind of takes us down a different side road of like just the social media part where, you know, during all of that stuff where we had no information, we're sitting there just endlessly scrolling our phones and trying to figure out what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Right. It was like, this was the weird, comfortable thing that was still normal. And I mean, before COVID, our phones were a pacifier at best anyways, you know, like we always had them up until we go to bed and all that stuff. And now it was, right. it's your, not only your source of information, but your source of existential dread, you know? So you have your phone in front of you and every piece of nightmare information that's coming through is coming through your phone, you know, because most of us are, have uh, cut the cable so we we you know we have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon on our on our big TVs and on our phones and on our phones but we're, you know you don't have like ABC you're not watching 60 minutes every week no so it's you know it's left to like what's on your social media so like you're getting the opinions of 10,000 people intermixed with news articles and it's just this endless scroll which has been dubbed doom scrolling you know and so people found themselves, I mean, going back to March, people found themselves laying in bed, eyes wide open, insomnia out of control, just wildly staring at their phone, looking at like the numbers climb and climb and climb and not know what to do about it because you're, one, you're completely impotent because you have no power in that situation. And two, you're completely unprepared for something of that scale. You know, nobody expects the Spanish flu or World War One, you know, something something of this massive scale to be happening. Right. And so, I mean, there's definitely the question to be asked of doom scrolling and the way social media was essentially designed. And the question we asked at the beginning is, was it on purpose? Was right. it an accident? Is it for profit? Is it not? Was already a thing before COVID. And Absolutely. then all of a sudden there's all of this stress. There's this anxiety. There's the unknown happening. You don't know if you can keep your job or not. Like what's going on with school? What's going on with the government? Where's my money from that terrible check that took forever? Yeah. Where's the second one? You know what I mean? Like there's all this stuff that we just don't know and everything's unstable and seems horrible. And then, and so like the mental health effects coming out of that, like situation of the unknown and lockdown. And now all of a sudden we're working from home. Now all of a sudden you're essentially segregated from everything you know about what normal life is and this like device in your hand that, you know, is questionably designed to force you to stare at it and continue to be on it forever. Right. Is now the only thing that feels normal and you're, and statistically people are driving themselves into it hard. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's designed to feel normal and comforting, but at the same time, it's, driving a knife into your side. You know, it's it's this device that provides you with your diaper, but at the same time, you know, closes its hands around your throat because like you're sitting there getting every piece of information that makes you more scared, more upset, more more anxious is coming through the phone. But at the same time, you can't put it down because that's where your information is coming from. Right. And so like um, between March and May, Harris Poll conducted a survey and found that roughly 50% of U.S. adults were using social media more. It's an undefined amount of more, but more since the outbreak began. Yeah. And so we already knew, I think from talking through the statistics of last episode, that usage is high. 
Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So when you're in a situation like this, I mean, more being undefined like this, but half of people are using it more. That seems low to me. It does. And, you know, that was also from early May. Right. And that was months. I mean, early May. I mean, the real depression didn't set in until July. Early May is <laughs> 1965. Like it's like it's a whole nother planet at this point, you know? Yeah. And, you know, early May, we were still thinking like we're going to see Tenet in the theaters. You know, early May, we were still thinking that like there'd be a way to like go to a family wedding. You right. Know? And it's, and it's funny because the way our brains have changed. I remember, I distinctly remember having a conversation with a good friend of mine whose sister was getting married in October. Yeah. And we had the conversation in May and he was talking about how he didn't think it was going to happen and it was this bizarre thing. And, you know, obviously now there's no wedding going to be happening and you don't even think about it. But I recently saw on Instagram, somebody I worked with in Los Angeles, their family had a 200 person wedding in Nashville with no masks in sight. And it was this whole thing that just happened like five days ago. And seeing that gives me this, like, I got anxiety looking at the photos. Right. Thinking, oh, God, what are they doing? Yeah, I've had the same thing, like seeing people on my Instagram being at weddings or having weddings right. or whatever. And, like, I feel like most people have had some level of, like, this happening around them. Yeah. Like, I've seen the dichotomy for sure because, like, so I had a family member pass away in the middle of COVID, which we're still in the middle, but so earlier in COVID. Yeah. And um, it was just this whole thing because she was in Texas at the time that she passed away. She had to, you know, do what you do with dead bodies and then come back here. Yeah. And we had to go to Virginia and hold a funeral. Right. And then around that same time, another family member that I don't know from my wife's side of the family also passed away. And oh, so wow. we didn't go to that one, but we heard what it was like. And it was a hundred percent different than the funeral that we went to. Yeah. So the one that we went to, it was direct family and like close friends only. Everybody was wearing masks. Nobody sit in the little tent. Yeah. Like it was very short. We didn't have like a party after like none of that stuff. Yeah. It was just like, and unfortunately, you know, that's sad. That's not the funeral. I know that this person would have wanted, but yeah, it, you know, that's kind of what everybody felt like had to be done. And then the dichotomy on the other side was there was this other funeral. And I mean, there was 200 people there. It was three hours long. Nobody wow. was wearing masks. Everybody was hugging. And like, it was, it was completely insane. Well, and and that, that brings a whole nother point is, is one, people are sick of it. Like people don't want to not have, the version where we get to have a big meeting and do all that stuff. Like, right. And that's, you know, that's a problem. That's sad. But then on the flip side, you know, we also, as human beings, we look at those situations where there's 200 people without masks having a wedding or a funeral or something along those lines. And people like you or I who are like concerned about it, and we have reasons why our family needs to stay healthy. We look at that and it, we're, we're kind of like on some level, we're scared of it a little. Right. You know? Because I mean, I would love to do that. I, I same. Like I, I would. I'd love to go to like Asheville right now and spend the day going from brewery to brewery and right, just hanging out. And like the fact that I can't is like very scary. But the fact that like also I look at how other people are doing those things and just you know throwing caution to the wind. It's really interesting how that alters your brain 
of where a year ago I would have looked at a 200 person wedding and rolled my eyes and been like, uh, that looks boring. Right. Now I'm like, Jesus, I wish I could go to a 200. Sounds like a party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's completely changed my perception of social gatherings. Yeah. You know? And, and it's weird. Like, I don't want to jump too far into the weeds of like this COVID specific uh, conspiracy theory type stuff. But where we are now, uh, we're not that far away from the election. No. And so it somewhat raises a little bit of that question as we're talking about stuff like this. And again, I don't want to get too far down this path, but there's this entire time been this whole, uh, you know, culture of people denying that the virus exists, trying to cling to the statistics that there's a 0.006% death rate if you look at it on the aggregate. And the only reason, you know, it looks like the United States has more cases is because we're testing more. So sure. because we're testing more, you know what I mean? And that yeah. kind of additional data, of course, it's going to look like we're more, we're testing more. Right. You know what I mean? And they're using all this stuff as like a, to deny the danger mm-hmm. kind of aspect to it. And, you know, at the same time, there's all these people that are like, you know, the virus is fake. I'm not wearing a mask. You're stepping on my rights by that, yeah. you know, which is a whole other thing to talk about. And then the part where there's the question that I've legitimately questioned is, you know, depending on who wins this election, is the the COVID threat going to magically disappear and just fall into the, yeah. you know, into the ether, the mist of of media, and we're never going to hear it about it about it again, like the you know giant death wasps or whatever they were that oh, were the in Oregon. Hornets. Yeah. I mean, when's the last time you heard about that? Uh, just recently, apparently in Washington, they killed a giant. Uh, gathering of them like three days ago. I mean, that's good, but like, yeah. you know, they were but saying, but killer, your point is, your you point know, is a hundred percent true. Attack yeah. of the killer bees was going to be this whole thing. And then all yeah. of a sudden it disappears and, you know, through media and social media and the way that it has been changing over the last number of years, we've seen this exact same thing. Yeah. Some huge thing will pop up. It'll blow through the internet. It's true. And then a week later it'll be gone. And you know, the, and that's happened so many times yeah. now with the way that, information spreads through social media, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more about later. Yeah. Very you know, this so. question of will COVID magically disappear after the election? Yeah. And I mean, to me, it's a real serious question. Yeah. And and I can see that question. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, I have these moments where I think the same thing and I, I honestly feel like, no, it's not going to be a situation where it just vanishes. Because I well, I think like two days ago, the White House came out and claimed that the COVID threat was over. Right, exactly. Like officially claimed. Yeah, yeah. COVID threat they, was they over. Said it was but but today, as we're recording this, it it was the largest number of new cases in the country ever. Yeah, every day is the, the largest number of new cases. Well, I mean, it went down for a while, but yeah, like recently, the past couple of days have been very, very high, and and, a, and yeah. deaths have been up through the roof. Yeah, and, and of course, we're staring at going back to school six days. You know, having children in, back in, in school a couple in days. person. Yeah, six days after the election, and there's no plan. There's no PPEs. There's no nothing. Right, exactly. Like, and it's and it's terrifying, you know, because it it creates a situation where I understand what you're saying, where like maybe after the election, this is just going to like lift because it, there's a pressure cooker situation leading up to, it feels like there's a pressure cooker situation leading up to the election where we put for sure all of our meat and all of our vegetables into this pressure cookie cooker and turn it up because we know the higher the pressure is, the faster it'll cook and the faster people will go vote. And that creates a sense of urgency because 
I've been in marketing for 25 years and you know, the number one rule is create a sense of urgency. Right. You know, if people don't think that there's a reason for them to buy something right at that moment, they're not going to buy something. Right. That's why if you drive around Los Angeles, you're going to see 500 billboards up for whatever movies coming out that week because people are, they're going to make it seem like it's the biggest event coming out. You yeah. Know? Well, Even, let's circle back to this because yes. we're going to talk about a lot more of this kind of stuff later Absolutely. in the show. So let's talk a little bit about, um, to kind of circle back to the social media use portion and how it's changed during COVID. Yeah. Um, how work from home has changed the landscape for yes. use. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. So for me personally, work from home uh, wasn't a huge change because I worked from home before this all happened. You know, I, I work for a company that's based in Los Angeles. And so I've been working from home for a year before all this happened. But right. I directly saw my wife who worked for a nonprofit and they had an office in Durham and, you know, it was an office you had to go to every day. And I watched how that, you know, turned up and then they came from home and watched them on Zoom calls all day. And it was a massive change for her. You know, it was very different. Yeah. Like I've had an extremely similar experience. So I work for a company that was based in Texas. Before that, it was based in Illinois. And, um, I've been working home for eight years in wow. four in six weeks. It'll be eight years wow. that I've been working from home. And so to me, like I definitely didn't feel a lot of the impact that other people felt where yeah. magically they were working from home there. It was their first time and they were having to figure out how to deal with the mental right. stress of working from home. And like those first, at first when I started working from home, of course I had the choice. So I was in a very different place yeah. because going into the office was extremely depressing. Nobody was there. I was the only person who was weird. So I chose to start working from home and my manager was really cool about it. And, you know, at first I was really pumped because I was like, oh, I don't have to be in the office anymore. Right. I don't have to go anywhere. Yeah. I can work longer. I can work harder and I don't have to leave. I don't have to deal with traffic. You know, my gas expenses are lower or whatever. Um, but the further you get into work from home, past when you make that choice if you have the choice um it immediately becomes this weird balancing act of mental gymnastics 100 where you can all of a sudden like you know snap out of it one day and be like when's the last time i left the house right. when's the last it, time i wore pants it's very true yeah and so there was definitely this like mental gymnastics that i've been playing for the last eight years where i'm like i can legitimately not leave the house for an entire week yeah and you know, whatever. And so I had to start making myself leave the house and like I would go to the gym in the morning on purpose as a way to get out yep. um, and have that be my time when I get out. It's also, it was also my time to go to the grocery store, run errands and stuff like that before work and then come home and work all day. And, you know, the biggest change that I saw with COVID was, you know, two things. First, you know, all the gyms shut down. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was having some other back plane problems at the time. So like I wasn't really going to the gym anyway, but, um, you know, all of a sudden there was, it wasn't that my choice to leave the house was gone. Yeah. You know, so even if I did want to leave the house to get out of the house to change the scenery, now I couldn't. Right. And I already spend all of my time here. And so that was like a big mental gymnastics thing that my head was playing and I was having to deal with. And then on top of that, my wife is a school teacher and, you know, she went uh, yeah. on a track out and then just never went back. Yeah. And, and she's been home 
this entire time. You know what I mean? And then now all of a sudden we're dealing with the stress of right. what's going to happen when she goes back to school. And that's a whole other conversation to have. And it's a whole dumpster fire. But <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like I can see how the mental strain of magically being forced to work from home when you've never had to do it. You like you don't have the the desk and the chair and the things set up in your office ready and you're having a hard time working. Yeah. Your kids are yelling in the back. You know what I mean? And dealing with all of that, you know, and I think there was a statistic we talked about last show where it's like people pay attention to content or change content between their computer or their phone or whatever they're looking at every 19 seconds or something like that. So you throw into, you throw in the mental stress and all of a sudden you're at home. So there's nobody looking over your shoulder, making sure you're working. You're dealing with the mental gymnastics of work from home and you're changing content every 19 seconds. And now you have this huge opportunity to stare at your phone. Yeah. With no one looking over your shoulder. Right. With no one checking behind you. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely true. It's crazy because, you know, myself, I, you know, I was working from home and I had a pretty good schedule set up where I would get up, walk my daughter to school, come home and then get in my car, drive over, sit at a coffee shop for two hours. And since my office was on the uh, West coast, I had a three hour jump start on everybody in that office. So I would bang out all the emails that I needed to do for the day. Not for the day, but like get, catch yeah, to up get on started. Everybody. Yeah, exactly. And I would like blast them with stuff that I had to be working on for the day. So like I would preload everything and then I would go home and then I would meal prep and then go to the gym and do all this different stuff. Oh, that and sounds like such a nice schedule. It was, it was amazing. And then all of a sudden COVID hit and like wife was home, kid was home no choice in any of it. Can't go anywhere. Can't do anything. Can't do anything. I mean, I have a two-year-old in the house, so there's literally nothing to be done. Yeah. So, I mean, it took, it took my wife and I like a lot of back and forth and like not arguing, but just like you had to figure out how to make it work. Negotiating. Yeah. Yeah, Essentially negotiating. What we eventually found that worked was, um, I, because my office was in Los Angeles, I would stay with my daughter until lunchtime when she had to go for, down for a nap. And then after nap, my wife would take over with my daughter and I would be able to work after nap time. So she would work in the morning and I would take care of the kid and then I would work in the afternoon. She would take care of the kid. Okay. And it was the only thing that worked. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have been able to pull that off. And it turned into a situation where we were only working like five hours a day, you know, but it was what we had to do, you know? Yeah. One of the things that's been kind of tough for me is like, I'm one of those people that's very like retrospective and looks back and it's like, Oh, you should have made a different decision. Um, And so now it's weird because if you, if you're a person who worked from home before COVID and you had a boss who was at the very least any kind of flexible. Yeah. um, Most companies that support work from home really don't care where you're working from. Yeah. They just care that you're getting your work done yeah. and they have ways to track productivity and stuff like that. But with the job that I do, I could very easily work from anywhere. Yeah. I've worked from the beach before. I've worked sure. from bars yeah. before. I've worked from the airport. I've worked, you know, I've worked, which is from, amazing. I've worked from tons of places, Yeah, but it wasn't a thing that I did a lot. And a number of my other peers did do it a lot. They would work, they would like, um, get up, work from home around breakfast. They'd head into the office like mid-morning. They'd work, you know, from the office for a while, do some lunch, work from the office a little longer, 
head to the bar in the afternoon, work from the bar, you know, whatever they would like change their yeah. scenery. And I just never really jumped on that bandwagon. Yeah. I would wake up early enough to like take a shower, do some stuff or, you know, when, when I was going to the gym, I'd get up, I'd go to the gym, I do all that kind of stuff. I come home, but then I would just be at my desk yeah. at home all day. And now I look back, I'm like, should I have done more of that? Should I have like are gone you, to the bar? Should I have gone? Are to you the- a sl- like a slog worker or are you a, like a burst worker? Like slog worker, do you have to be sitting at your desk for like eight hours straight and just kind of like bang stuff out? Or are you a burst worker where you kind of like let stuff build up and then blow it out for two hours straight and then just like not worry about it for a while? Um, it or are you kinda, some hybrid? It, it kind of, yeah, it's definitely some kind of hybrid of yeah. that. Because like my, what the job that I do, uh, it has its like ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's busy. Sometimes it's yeah. slow. Um, it's really unpredictable when it's going to be busy and when it's going to be slow. So it's tough. Like I have my email on my phone. I check it when I have doctors. That makes sense for your field. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so like within the technology in- industry, it's kind of hard to know because yeah. I could get a phone call and two minutes later, I need to be looking at a 50,000 line spreadsheet. So right. it's like, yeah. or I could spend the entire day just answering emails on my phone yeah. and it's just very simple back and forth email type questions. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so that's the part where that always kind of kept me from doing that. But now I'm like, I could have done it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, cu- I could have made it work and I didn't. Um, but you know, now with the way it is and being stuck at home and stuff, I, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of think about that. I toy with that kind of stuff in my head. Yeah. Like I think I must, I think through scenarios a lot. I've been lately, I've been really trying to be more of like a burst worker where, um, you know, I, but the difference is I know what I'm working on throughout the day. Like I make my schedule the day before, so I know what I have to knock out. And so I'll, I'll like really schedule heavy work times and then schedule times where I'm not doing anything, which is really helpful for me at least. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I can essentially see, I guess from our perspectives, it's clear the, you know, mental health strain of working from home. And I can exactly. see how difficult that would be if you were kind of forced into it unwillingly by this mysterious disease that's killing everybody everywhere. Sure. Um, yeah. So let's look a little bit more at the like statistics of mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when when you break it down, I mean, even from social media beforehand, uh, before all of COVID, uh, you know, when you look at uh, just things like depressive symptoms and all these other things, uh, if you look at uh, just with uh, teen girls, uh, after nearly two decades in decline, high depressive symptoms for 13 to 18-year-old teen girls rose by 65% between 2010 and 2017. So obviously way before COVID. And these things were building up before that. And I mean, I mean, I know for, for me personally, uh, if I look back at that time frame, going back to, you know, 2010, say 2009, when I was really starting to think about that stuff, I can definitely see a path of, of increased depression based on how like social media came into my life. Yeah. And even using it because, I mean, for me, my path of social media was through work initially because I was already like an adult working in, in, in the world. And I still even see that coming through and seeing how I interacted with people, how, how all that stuff happened. I can see all that stuff, you know? So what about for you 
you know, kind of thinking back to, to 2010 to 2017. Yeah. I mean, so for me, 2010 is the year I graduated from college. Okay. And that was basically right in the midst of the, I think it was late Bush, early Obama period. 2010 was, 2010 was, was early Obama. Obama. Yeah. Early um, Obama. But that was the last, you know, that was like the economic downturn, quote unquote. It was kind of the end of it. it was yeah. And yeah. well, and so graduating in 2010 from sure. college was a horrible time to graduate. Oh, yeah. Like I didn't find a permanent job for two years. Yeah. That like makes it, sense. Yeah. You know, and I did good in college. You know what I mean? And I have a weird degree. So it's like I should have been able to find something somewhere and it there were just no jobs. So like to me... That's more what I was looking at at that time. And I think social media uh, applications for phone launched in 2009. Yeah. And so I know that really kind of seemed like the beginning. Or I know uh, what's that documentary, The Social Dilemma. Yeah. It essentially tried to make that link that that's where the downturn started. And so like there's this really interesting statistic as well where if you look at the number of teenage girls out of 100,000 in the U.S., who are admitted to a hospital every year because they either cut themselves or otherwise harm themselves. That number has increased 62% for 15 to 19 year olds and 190% for 10 to 14 year olds since 2009. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's another statistic about that. That's similar about the suicide rate for those same groups. Right. And it's like, um, 60% and 160% or something like that where it's right. that it's like that same group of girls over the same time period but the suicide rate right exactly and it, it's just interesting yeah. to think you know it's hard to really make a t- a direct connection to that uh, that you know 2009 is when social media launched for applications for phone and that's when all of a sudden the um you know uh self-mutilation and suicide rates for girls in in like early teen and high school age just started exploding yeah. for no apparent reason off the charts yeah yeah and i mean it's you know those things were there before like there you know people were self-harming and cutting and all these things and that that went back you know a hundred years but it really really took off then and you know even the guy who basically was the director of monetization for Facebook said, it's plain as day to me. These services are killing people and causing people to kill themselves. And so, you know, that's just crazy to me. Yeah. Tim, but I could see it. Like if you think about bullying over social media or anything like that, and young people are extremely susceptible to that kind of thing. And then, you know, it's this idea like our brains have not developed over time the same amount in proportion to how technology has developed. And it's this question of like, um, you know, our brains are developed to care about what our tribe thinks of us and not what 10,000 people on the internet think of us. Absolutely. So how, how are we supposed to deal with that idea of everybody else around me is getting likes and I'm not getting likes Yeah. or um, I post a picture and a bunch of people like it. Some people comment on it. Some people, some person comes says, you know, you're an ugly fat piece of shit. You should kill right. yourself. And then you do. Right. You know, and there's been a bunch of legal ramifications for that as well. Like, I mean, you can be indicted for essentially, um, I can't remember what the crime is, but basically yeah. telling somebody to kill themselves and they yeah. do. 
you know, if you do that in person, like a verified version of manslaughter. Yeah, you can. Day. Yeah, you can essentially yeah. be convicted of manslaughter for telling somebody to kill right. themselves over the internet, Modified, and then yeah. they do. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and it's amazing. You know, going back, it's um, when I was in high school and I was a freshman, I was bullied a lot. Like I was a I was a major like target for kids. Okay, I was extremely obese. I was a nerdy kid. I read I read three books a week. And did nothing but like all I did was like paint and read. God, all I did. You were a nerd. I was a major nerd. Like you don't (laughs) even know. And and that was all the way up until I was about fifteen. And I cannot even imagine how bad it would have been if I had to navigate social media in that time frame too. Because right, I was reading weird books that like made me think different things and like I would I would examine those thoughts in my head and if I was putting that stuff out in social media and you know yeah because as a kid you would right of course I why would. wouldn't you say I read this weird book and I'm thinking these weird exactly thoughts. and then somebody comes back as you're a fucking psycho like right you know like look at look at Jaden Smith who he's like eyes are windows to the mirrors of the soul he like you know he writes this weird stuff that like you know it's based in these like I'm not going to hate on Jaden Smith because he's like, he's writing stuff that's based in these weird psychological theories that he's reading. But, you know, Perez Hilton reads it and suddenly says like, who the F is this kid writing this weird stuff and tears it apart. And that's no different than like the, the basic bullying that would be happening for any kid who's a freshman in high school in Poughkeepsie, you know, except now the bullier is behind a keyboard and can say anything without the risk of you happening to punch them in the face. Well, they can say significantly more absolutely. brutal stuff on a, you know, on a higher frequency with more touch, absolutely. with more reach, you know, yeah. than they can during the limited amount of time you were at school. Cause like, and they can be anonymous, right? Can they be anonymous? Well, I mean, pretty much like you can just have some random Instagram handle. Yeah. And, you could have like a kids, fake Facebook you know? or something. But like on top of that is like, even, you know, we're not back in the days where like you have to learn how to use Usenet or like get a special like password to get an email account or anything like the same kids that would have beat the shit out of me when I was a freshman in high school are the same kids that can go on your Instagram today in 2020 with no barrier of entry and, and talk shit about you and make your life hell, you know? Yeah. So there's, there's no, there's nothing stopping those same dudes that could kick your butt. There's nothing stopping them from harassing you on Instagram. And then the next morning went to school, punching you in the face. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, everybody's got the same iPhone. Yeah. Cause it know? was this time where you would go to school and if you got bullied, whatever. And when you got home, you were at home, it was this safe, you were spot safe. or whatever. But now it's, not totally unsafe because you have this very helpful yet very dangerous thing in your hand yeah. that is, you know, blasting news and Instagram garbage at you and Facebook yeah. garbage at you 24/7. and also people talking shit to you and about you. And it's not like it stops with kids either. The internet can be such a great place for communities to come together and do stuff and coordinate stuff and whatever. Like my wife is in this plant group and she's constantly trading plants, getting free yeah. plants, selling plants, doing plant stuff, That's crazy. advising people about plants, like all of this ridiculousness. But then there's all of these communities across Facebook and Reddit and whatever that are easily, you know, the most unfettered toxic environments on the planet where people Absolutely. just are horrible to each other. Um, and especially with like the election coming up in the political landscape, I mean, people just don't give a shit about what they say or do to other people. No, the pressure cooker keeps turning up, you know? Uh, yeah. There's nothing to stop it. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, and it's, 
you know, the cyberbullying is cyberbullying period is completely out of control. You know, it just, it picks up and picks up and picks up and it's not just like, you know, young boys, young girls, it's everybody across the spectrum is, is experiencing this. And it creates a weird thing where people are not taking the risks that they should. You know, when I was, when I was 15 years old, I had a chance to, well, what basically happened was if I wanted to get my license, I had to basically fix this car that was dragged up to my driveway. It was 71 Chevelle. And my, Sick. I, well, I had to put a motor in it and fix it or else I couldn't take a driver's test because that was how Damn. I, would, I would get my, my license. My dad just bought me a Bronco. I, I would love to have a Bronco. <laughs> but, a sick uh, truck. So essentially I had to like yank a motor out of an RV and a transmission and put it in the Chevelle and fix it up. And like, that was what I drove to the, to the DMV test. And you know, that was 1992, you know? And so that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. You know, kids these days are not getting their driver's license, even though they live in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. No way to get around. They're they're not not engaging with other people. They're not having romantic relationships at such a rate. And like, that's crazy to me because like I look back and I definitely don't view myself as somebody who was like popular. I was not like a popular dude, but I was a successful competitive hockey player. I had friends. I had a lot of, you know, general acquaintances and friends and stuff like that. And I never really saw myself as being that like, so too successful with any one friend or I didn't really have girlfriends because I was out playing hockey all the time. But then I look back and I went to at least one prom every single year that I was in high school. And I went to oh, four wow. proms my senior year. So I like, went to zero proms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. That's terrible. It, it, like it I thought it was such, it was such fun, but like I think back now and like if I had, and like at the time I had like an Altel flip phone that you could only text on using that like, you know, where you had to push the one button yeah, multiple yeah. times to like make letters and stuff. Um, but like how much more difficult would that, you know, kind of thing have been when there was social media all around. Yeah. And, and really like I was in a unique position cause I can't remember if it was like 2005 or 2006 when face with Facebook, uh, no, uh, MySpace launched in 2004. Yeah. Facebook launched in 2005 and then Facebook opened up to, uh, past college to yeah. and uh, high schools with uh, email addresses in right. 2006. Right. And so my senior year, I had a Facebook, but my uh, soft sophomore and junior years, I had and senior year, I had a, a MySpace. Yeah. And so like the, it was starting to come along, but we were sure. so new at it, and we were still so hooked to AOL. Yeah. That we had we had kind of figured that talking to each other platform out where it was instant. <laughs> yeah. But we hadn't really entirely figured out um, these like, you know, early MySpace and Facebook platforms. And they definitely were not nearly as flexible and toxic as they are now with stuff like the like button and getting hearts, you know, likes on your Instagram posts and stuff like that. And it's interesting now that you can like look back at some of these statistics since like, you know, after they added the like button to Facebook and when Instagram launched and it had the like thing um, that you know, this whole system of likes kind of like keeps you attracted. It's part of that, like, um, uh, the like casino mentality that I think we talked about last time where it's like, uh, that instant gratification of like throwing a post up and then like seeing how many likes you get and you get the most likes at the beginning and then it starts like taper off. Um, but like there's very interesting, these aren't really statistics, but like 
Um, as an example, the number of likes on a celebrity Instagram account can significantly change the way you see yourself. An experimental study showed that when women were exposed to different celebrity in Instagram images, their rating of their own appearance dropped in a direct proportion to the number of likes attached to the image that they were looking at. Right. And, and yeah. that's just crazy to me. And like to kind of build on that a little bit, um, the more time you spend on Instagram, the more likely you are to suffer from an eating disorder like anorexia. Yeah. And, and put it in this context of where look back at, you know, young girls in the eighties and nineties, where, where did they see that stuff? magazines, billboards, TV. billboards, TV. So they would go to the grocery store and they would see it, you know, in that, that slot as you're going to the whatever. checkout, all that stuff would be in your face yeah. to a certain level. Now imagine today where that in your face is in the palm of your hand 24 seven, there's no escaping it, you know? And not yeah. only, not only are you, not only are you locked into what's going on with the influencers and the celebrities, all of your friends are going through that too and and putting it in your face also. There's zero escape for them. Right. Like there's a new show on Netflix that I've been watching that's pretty funny. It has a, um actor in it that I really like to follow his stuff, Walter uh, Walton Goggins. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. he's so he's funny awesome. to me. He was in Django Unchained, I think. Yeah. And he's been in a bunch of other stuff. But I really just like love the way that he acts. So that's what attracted me to the show. But basically in the show... He is a single dad who's a widower and he has these two like young middle school, early high school age daughters. And there's this one scene that really kind of jumped out to me as we were preparing for this episode and the last episode where the one daughter keeps like acting out and like leaving and he doesn't know where she is. And she keeps, you know, she keeps kind of like disappearing and not communicating with him and stuff. And then her bike like breaks down somewhere and, she was supposed to be at home. And so she calls him to come get her and he shows up and he's yeah. like, what are you doing? Why are you out here? Not telling me where you are. I'm supposed to know where you are. Like, that's the rule. And she was like, I'm surfing for walls. <laughs> and he was like, what is that? And she was like, she just points this giant, like a giant wall with a mural on it where people go to stop to take selfies. and stuff. Oh yeah. And she was like, I'm riding my bike around town, getting selfies at all of these walls with murals on them oh, because yeah. The other girls in my school are doing it. They're getting likes and I don't know why, but I want likes too. Yeah. And, you know, he ended up, you know, saying something very sweet and profound to her and then taking, driving her. and then driving yeah. her around to the world taking yeah. pictures and stuff. But that to me is just like, I mean, it's a little fantastical or yeah, whatever, yeah. but like that shit happens. It's a fun version of it, but like break that down into trying to look cool and like drinking with your friends and doing these different things, you know? Yeah. yeah. Or like all my friends are doing X, I want right. to do X. But now it's turned into all my friends are posting nudes and I want to put, you know, or I want to yeah. send, you know, naked text messages or I want an OnlyFans or I wanted to get yeah. likes on my Facebook or, you know, and I want to do whatever it takes to get yeah. all of this cheap, vague, fleeting external recognition yeah. via a button that takes one thousandth of a microsecond of brain impulse to decide to click it. Yeah. And, and I mean, you brought ridiculous. up only, only fans. There's money there too now. Yeah. You know, not now there always has been, but yeah. Well, I think we talked about that last time too, where only fans like totally changed the game for porn. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like now all these people are starting businesses there too, and they're leveraging stuff like Instagram. Yeah. To, you know, 
And especially with COVID. To drive traffic. With yeah. people needing money yep. and not having jobs and whatever, trying to like expand their portfolio into not only do I do X, but I also yeah. post pictures of my feet for money on OnlyFans or whatever, right. or whatever it is that they yeah. do. And to me, what this is really doing as a whole, if you think about it, is it's taking that like fragility of children, you know, because I can remember being in that spot and not knowing what to do and not knowing how to talk to girls, just feeling yeah. very unsure of myself as I was trying to figure out who I was. And these things are taking that fragility and creating a very clear and easy um, to utilize pathway to essentially exploit the shit out of that. Yeah. And the more insecure and unsure these kids and, you know, any people, even adults are about themselves, the more likely they are to get on these platforms and do more and look more and watch more and post more and, you know, and search for this, you know, totally, you know, unrealistic, unachievable level of internet stardom yeah. in, in the interest of somebody clicking on the like button. Well, I think, I think the insecurity is being just like weaponized and monetized across the board. Absolutely. You know, people are coming in and they're basically laying out, um, you know, if you have a fear of this, there's a product for that. If you have a fear of this, there's a product for that. So they go through and they basically mine what you're scared of and then use their own algorithms and their own studies to feed that back to you in a way that'll make you click and purchase. Yeah, like I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but there's a statistic that shows, or it's not really a statistic, but at some point there was an internal report that came out of Facebook that shows that they track 29,000 individual yeah. data points about every person that uses the platform. So, I mean, you are giving them everything that they would ever want to know about you for free. They're analyzing that data and they're feeding it back to you in a way that is, you know, showing you the next video and showing you the next yeah. ad and showing you the next post that is, you know, more likely to keep you going. And that's where that whole doom scrolling thing comes in. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just really interesting. Like if we kind of circle back, there's a quote that I'm going to read. Um, so Gen Z's people born after around 1996. It's the first generation that started on social media in middle school. So this would be one generation behind yeah. me because I started in high school. Um, it's a whole generation of more anxious, more fragile, and more depressed young people. They're less comfortable taking risks. The rates, of, and we talked about this earlier, the rates yeah. at which they're getting driver's licenses dropping. The number of people who's ever been on a date or had a romantic relationship is dropping Drastically. So, I mean, I think if we are putting, trying to put two and two together to show that, you know, when social media launched, there were very clear changes as that was starting to develop. Absolutely. Once it came out for mobile, we saw very clear changes in that. And now, if we're looking back at these Gen Zs as the very first group of people to have it in middle school, and they, you know, and now our next generation are growing up with it. They are yeah. literally coming out of the crib with Birth, a Facebook, yeah. you know, with parents with their children on Facebook mm -hmm. posting pictures of them and then they get old enough to have their own Facebook. And I yeah. think we're going to see in the future a whole other wave of these kind of statistics looking back at 
you know, absolutely kids having too much screen time and not developing well, it's already properly there, and whatever. Yeah, I mean that's already happening. Yeah. And we're already starting to see those statistics, but it'll be interesting and not interesting. It'll probably be very depressing and sad yeah, to look back and so. see, you know, these kids who grew up, you know, with their parent being like, oh, I'm just sick of you crying here. Watch a, you know, flip flubs video on my phone for nine hours yep. instead of paying attention to them or teaching them something or doing whatever. And then watching how those kids progress through our fully digitized and technological, uh, you know, culture yeah. to where you know, they have phones when they're in elementary school. They probably have, you know, they have their Facebook accounts and they grow up yeah. even in elementary school, I assume bullying each other and doing everything that we've been talking about. Yeah. I mean, the standard stuff, you know, it's, it's, you know, I know kids who are, you know, f- friends of the family and stuff like that, that are, you know, seven, eight years old who have full phones with cell phone access who can make calls and have data plans and all that stuff yeah. at six, seven years old and, you know, sometimes a little younger, sometimes a little older. And, yeah, and like I didn't get a phone until I got my driver's license and that's because my parents wanted me to be able to call them in case anything happened. Which but, makes sense. Yeah. But like I would go home and do homework and play video games and go to hockey practice and whatever and now these kids, you know, and we, I don't have the data points in front of me, but these kids are going home and um, even outside of doing homework, which now is on the computer, right? There's right. this, you know, there's Google Classroom, there's PowerSchool, there's all these applications. It's where all right like, there, yeah. Like, I know, like, probably for us, like, you had to wait till you got your report card or you had to go ask your oh, teacher, yeah. where am I on my grades? You had to go check with them. It was written down. They, like, kept it in Excel sheets and shit. Yeah. And now, like, it's been empowering for the parents in some aspect where like they can log into power school and see, Oh God, you can see every test. Yeah. And and you can see every test. It basically is live updating your kids' grades on, on the internet and whatever. Um, but like all of this information is now there and I can't remember what the point I was trying to make was at this point, but you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just crazy to me. Yeah. It's wild. And, And you know, it's funny is when you were talking about like when you got your first, phone and stuff I, my first instinct was like i'm gen x i mean i'm, I'm 10 old 10 years older than you my first instinct was like i'm gen x and i didn't get a phone until i bought my own phone like i was in college and like that's a real thing where like people who are gen x or boomers or whatnot they're like they're empowered to kind of make fun of you for like where you came in on the grid you know and it creates this situation where it's yeah. us versus them where they're like, you know, well, I had Prodigy and I had AOL and I had the, and like, you know, you're supposed to argue about that stuff, but like, I don't think it's that important now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're also, we're also up to our necks that it doesn't matter anymore. You know? Yeah. I and mean, that's a really easy connection to make over to the political landscape. It like is, it's so yeah. polarized. And like I tell people like, I to me it doesn't really matter what you know uh political affiliation you say you subscribe to I would almost guarantee if you take most people and you break it down to the issue to an issue level an issue on issue level you could have an intelligent respectful conversation with that person and probably figure out whether you think you're a super liberal democrat or you're you or you think you're an ultra conservative if you really break it down to the issue and have a conversation about it i would bet money most people are pretty close on most things 
It's just this yeah. ultra polarized, ultra us versus you. You know, if you know the the voting system is now not for your guy, it's right. against the other guy. Yeah. You know, it's just created this landscape, and social media has just accelerated that, and twenty four hour news media has just accelerated that in this like unprecedented way where we are the most divided now we've ever been. And I agree. I I totally agree with that because, you know, it's I grew up in Florida with all the Florida things. You know, I'm I'm pretty liberal, but I grew up in a very conservative family. You know, I've owned guns my whole life. I grew up as a like a gun toting liberal, you know, and like which is weird enough as it is. And then <laughs> right. And then I moved to and then I moved to Los Angeles. And I in Los Angeles, I was basically the most conservative guy in Los Angeles. But, but I mean, I'm very far on the left wing, but in where I found myself, I was, I was pretty conservative. And then here in Raleigh, I'm pretty much in the center. And it's really funny because you have all these different, like, uh, you know, left and right wing and all these different things. And, and at the end of the day, like a lot of that stuff is, is kind of silly and superfluous because it basically makes a situation where people are fighting for the left wing versus the white right wing. And they're looking at what they see on not necessarily the news media every day, but on different news sites where once you start getting into the deep levels of the internet, you know, you start seeing all these things bubbling up that are very partisan one side or the other. And people start building up these thoughts in their head of like where they're left on the left wing or the right thing, right wing. And that's where we start building these echo chambers, which has been one of the worst things that have come out of the internet. Yes. You know, the internet was originally supposed to be a place where we all got along together and learn everything. And all the, all the intelligence for all of humanity is stored in this one wonderful place where we can all access it. Exactly. But no, we, what we did no. was we created steel boxes where we threw all of our personal thoughts and prejudices into, and then we locked ourselves into those steel boxes once we put everything in there. And all that has done is given a, uh, a, a 100% marketing target for people who want to push a certain agenda because what they realize is they have people stuck into these one spaces and they know that all they have to do is market this certain sort of thing into that echo chamber and those people will buy it, you know, right. and you look at it on, you know, Facebook has put out all these, I mean, Facebook didn't do it, but all these other companies have put out these reports about how Facebook, you know, uh, older Republicans are more likely to fall for these scams and there's all these different things. And like, and so they put out these ideas where like, yeah, I mean, if you fall into a zone where all you're hearing is what you want to hear, chances are you're going to fall for the scams that are coming out of that. Exactly. You know? And it happens on both sides. This is not, and this isn't yeah. me saying both sides. Like, no, you know, I mean, it's a hundred percent true. And I think that this is where the conspiracy starts to come in. Because if you think about that exactly. point I said earlier, where we talk about, if we're talking about Facebook specifically, right? They track 29,000 different data points right. on any particular Everything. person. And so one of the things that's really interesting and scary about Facebook is from like an echo chamber perspective, if you go on any one of the however hundreds of millions of people are on Facebook's pay on, on their, you know, you go on their phone and look at their feed. Yeah. That feed is going to be unique 
in every way 100%. to that person. And so yep. it's very interesting now when you try and have political conversations with people in purpose where in person where you ask, you know, I saw this thing, you didn't see that thing. Uh, no, they would not yeah. have saw that thing. There's no way that they can see that thing because if they do not have the exact same data points as you, like the same things, comment the same things on the same people, you know, share this post, share that post, whatever, they are going to see a totally different reality. And so now we have this question of shared reality falseness right. between every single person because the reality that you are taking in from your phone is the reality that is being fed to you by the algorithm and that algorithm mm-hmm. is creating a totally unique world just for you. Yeah. And, and that's just, what they want. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really easy because like even if you watched the debate, the presidential base or the vice presidential base, right? If you flip flopped between different news channels, you were getting a totally different story. This person won because this, the other yep. person won because that, just depending on what you were looking at. But extrapolate that out what, 300 million times or whatever it is, the number of people on Facebook, that's the number of truths that are being fed out right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you when you break that down and you look at it, it's, it's, it is creating thousands of bifurcated and disjointed realities among everyone else. And people are very happy to profit off of that because if you want to push a certain reality... Why not make money off that? Alex Jones sells brain pills and yeah. And you know, and Joe Rogan sells brain pills. And even though those guys go on each other's shows, it's different kind of brain pills. And then there's other people that are selling, you know, or like podcasters sell blue chew. Yeah. And, and matcha tea. And, and, yeah. and, and, you know, it's, and, and that brings back to it, to an honest question of like, where does it sit of, is this done on purpose or is this just for profit? Like, is this just a result of the algorithm they created to keep people watching? You know, you look at YouTube and from day one of, you know, I've worked in YouTube for forever and day one of YouTube all the way up until today, the most important thing is watch time. That's what they want is people staring at YouTube and clicking through videos. And, is what they're doing and and how they're feeding people into like crazy subgenres and niches are they doing that as a way to just keep making money and keep people on the watch time yeah you know the guy who basically the guy who invented the algorithm this french guy he went deep on this podcast and talked about it and he was talking about how he wanted to create a system where there would be a next video that would challenge your beliefs. And he was completely shut down. Like nobody wanted, nobody wanted to create a situation where your beliefs were challenged and then you would turn it off. Right. You want a thing that's pacifying you and affirming you and sending you more in that direction every time you go on it. And, you know, that's really interesting because there's a data point somewhere that's like 60% or something of people who ended up on a like fringe conspiracy um, page on Facebook um, over the last year or something like that was directed there by the Facebook algorithm. Right. So the yeah. question there is, did the algorithm send them there on with the purpose of polarizing them or is it by mistake, essentially, the algorithm saw that they liked... I don't know. They uh, somebody shared something about QAnon, and they yeah. liked it. And then 
Facebook algorithm had just happened to figure out that people who kind who kind of like uh, QAnon stuff also, also like yeah. Pizzagate stuff, and so then it starts pushing you that direction, and it starts feeding you. Uh, you might like this group about QAnon or you might like this group about QAnon and then it starts feeding you articles about the Pizzagate thing and then it feeds you the, the flat earth stuff and then, yeah. you know, and then it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. So unless you are essentially a dead, true, north, perfect, uh, moderate, right? the algorithm is going to continue to feed you more stuff to you know to keep you interested. And we know that... Um, you know, fake news spreads six times faster than true news. We yep. know that um, any post or news article that comes across Facebook or any other social media, the percentage chance that that that, that news article or whatever it is is going to uh, get shared or whatever, the for every word of outrage or that it's for every word in the post yeah. that incites outrage... Okay. For each one of those words, the post has a 7% higher likelihood of being shared. Yeah. Yeah. And it's insane. And so, like, if you even slightly believe in, you know, whatever it is, right, and you see a post about that, and then it shows you another post, yeah. and then another and there's post. there's money and, and And we know that, like, yeah. you know, the fake news travels faster. We know that the more outrageous it is, the more likely it is to travel it's just going to continue to show you more and more and more outrageous stuff because that's the stuff that creates engagement. And so it's yeah. a very easy, it's like a slippery slope kind of situation. Yeah, You kind of start and then all of a sudden you are running. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're starving in the morning and you wake up and there's a trail of bacon and you keep eating the bacon, you're going to head towards the direction where there's more and more bacon. You know, it's right. like, it's, it's not a thing that just drops off, you know? So it's when you go back to the 2016 election, they look at people and how how many people were involved with that, and they look at like how um, the 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 internet research agency, the the Russian propaganda arm, was involved in 2016. And this is this is not a left wing or right wing thing. I mean, both people who were appointed by Trump and people who were appointed by Obama both agreed that this is exactly what happened. That there were more than 150 million people that were directly had eyeballs on this Russian propaganda, you know, and it, and it wasn't, you know, that's not, a, that's not a big question. That's just something that happened. And 150 yeah. million people, that's like, you know, basically half the country. That's, that's yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. And it's like measurable now, if we look at this way that social media can like manipulate government even. Yeah. Cause like, so they know that the Russians came in and was basically having spam bots sending right. fake information out and whatever. Um, but like you can look at stuff like um, what was going on in Myanmar at the uh, over oh, the last yeah. like two years or whatever, and they can measurably show that uh, Facebook had a direct hand in destabilizing the government there yeah. because they were able to utilize Facebook as a way to spread misinformation with the yeah. purpose of destabilizing the government. And yeah. I mean, it was you know genocide there essentially essentially and and years ago like they had to destabilize the monetary currency and do these different things yeah they had to assassinate people and do whatever yeah. and and now all they have to do is open up facebook to that country yeah i mean it's like it's such an easy thing to manipulate it's not even yeah. that's not even difficult compared to like some of the stuff that they have to push into the united states because there's regulators in the united states yeah i mean it's the second cold war but instead of it being the u.s versus russia with james bond it's 
Facebook versus the world. Right. And, and I mean, and you go back to Myanmar, there's nobody like, there's no arbitrary, arbitrary person of knowledge, like stopping that. That is just like, it's just happening. And everybody has their, you know, they've all got like their Samsung phones and they're looking at them. Yeah. And there's no way to slow that down, you know? And if you look back at like Tiananmen Square, like, you know, something like that wouldn't have been able to happen today. You know, China wouldn't have been able to get away with that because the, the, the information would have been unleashed. Right. And so it, it does go both ways, but it's also easy to lock down and create a major problem. Well, China's a whole other conversation we can have another time. There's a number of conspiracies yeah. about COVID coming out and of And that'll there. be a whole that'll be a whole that'll thing. have to be a yeah. whole thing. But as a side note, we should so, be writing down what these whole things are. I know. Yeah. We, I've we got should talk about there was a weird conspiracy that came out uh, towards the beginning of uh COVID that we should talk about at some point. It was basically this uh conjecture that like a couple hundred million people's phone signals just oh, magically yeah. disappeared from the airwaves, and they yeah, think yeah, that yeah. all those people died from COVID. And I've read they a were like good amount about that. Yeah, um, we'll but then I know, that. like yeah. last week or the week before, um, there. So China has this thing called the Great Firewall. Yeah, which is funny because they have the Great Wall. It's a great, I, yeah. I, I yeah. know I just expositioned y'all, and I'm terrible. Good but marketing, whatever. Um, that uh, there was an application out there on the internet that you could go and get that would allow you to bypass the great firewall. So you could do stuff like access Google, get on Facebook and whatever. Yeah. Um, that application has mysteriously disappeared from the internet. It is gone. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a type of VPN. Those, those, they pop up every once in a while. And like you see every time they pop up, you'll see this like flood of information come out. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, as much as I, I dislike Zero Hedge. They put some interesting information once in a while out about that. Um, but, you know, while we're on that whole subject, I mean, we can we can start dropping into some of the, like, act, you know, some of the conspiracy theories that have come out, like, during COVID. You know? Yeah, I, de- I definitely want to talk about those. Like the, did it come from China? Was it the... Yeah. Was it the Clintons? Did it come out? I think I said this in our episodes here. Like, was it the, you know, did it come out of a basement in Guantanamo or something? You know, whatever. Has it already been in the country two years? Right. And all of a sudden it's a. And all those things were, you could find all those theories online. Yeah. Yeah. They're out there. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I I feel vexed about all this. I've actually read a lot about all these different things and and I've kind of dove in a a good amount. And I think. My personal feelings is I, I think COVID kind of developed naturally. And one of the ways that one of the reasons I think that was because of very recently, not very recently, about a month ago, there was a, a woman who uh, came out against the Chinese government and said that she was one of the people who helped develop COVID in her laboratory. Oh, wow. And so I haven't she, heard this one. Okay. So yeah, it's, and I'll, I'll in the show notes, I'll put her name, okay, and uh, and I'll put a couple links to stuff. So, so the only place that her article showed up was a non-peer reviewed journal, in the middle, you know, just this non-peer reviewed journal that anybody can put up their information on, and then the only people that picked it up from there was Zero Hedge, which I have a big problem with Zero Hedge, because Zero Hedge, they don't cite journalists, they don't cite their reporters. Okay. Everything is written by Tyler Durden. You know, <laughs> okay. Club. So, 
they are what they are and and everybody like is like oh who cares what they are but they publish information but for me it, like it's important who puts this stuff out as a former journalist you know i was an investigative reporter for years and so on zero hedge they put out some information they published her stuff and then all of a sudden it was picked up by tucker carlson and tucker carlson put her on the air and interviewed her but then it came out that like Steve Bannon and Giuliani were talking to her. So it was this kind of like rogues gallery of, of people who are trying to create things. And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way and all that stuff. And I looked at the research that she provided and looked at like what people were saying about it and it didn't seem plausible, you know? So I think that there is a very, very large percentile chance that this was developed naturally in the natural world and, and kind of, progressed and escaped the way it escaped, you know? And so maybe that's my democratic view or something, but it is what it is, you know, and that's kind of how I feel about it. And, and that feeds to a lot of different conspiracy theories that are involving in this. I don't know. Do you, do you want to share your thoughts on, on how it started or, or anything along those lines? Oh, I don't really know. I feel like we should have a whole episode on that. I, I feel like it could go deep on that. Just that. Yeah, on this one, I feel like I kind of want to like come back around a little bit to like the like the film your hospital stuff and the Q and yeah. PizzaGate stuff and okay like the TikTok and Q and okay. And so let's that. jump into that. So um, the film your hospital is a very interesting thing that came out um, about a month into lockdown. Um, it was probably late April when people started really grinding on that. And what happened was a lot of um, kind of right-wing influencers started going to lo- their local hospitals. And one of the, one of the original ones was um, uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. And then there was one in, um, in, uh, in Evansville, Indiana. And there were, there was a couple of small, there were small hospitals in the middle of nowhere. Okay. And what they did was they would walk into the hospital and film what was going on there. And essentially they would walk into the visitor's entrance of the hospital, uh, which was obviously still open because you have to keep an hospital open because the emergency room is there and still happening. And so people would walk into the visitor's room and see that it was completely empty because it was COVID. It was lockdown. There were no, you know, knee surgeries weren't happening and none of this stuff was happening at the time because everything was locked down. So a lot of these surgeries were pushed back. And so people were walking into hospitals and they were walking through different wings and, and, and videotaping empty hallways. And it was a very compelling thing because that is an interesting narrative because at the same time you're seeing on like drudge report, you're seeing these like endless scroll feeds of like New York city hospital full to limit, you know, Miami hospital full to limit. You're seeing all these things. ICUs bursting yeah. at the seams. Yeah. And or then, you're even seeing like the reports coming out of Italy where they're like, right. There's no more respirators. There's no exactly. more breathing machines or whatever right. those things are called. Uh, the hospitals are full. They're dumping their yep. bodies in the street. You know what I mean? Exactly. And you're just seeing yeah. all that. And, and you're like, and then Confused, these people are in you know. Lexington and being like, look, there's nobody here. And so it's a, it's a compelling thing to see in light of those, those headlines. But it's also dishonest because the hospitals had shut down all non-emergency surgeries. Because yeah, anything elective was out. You know, Everything elective Normal was out. services were out. 
So there weren't even there weren't even like orderlies. There weren't candy stripers. There was nobody working there, you know. So they're walking into an empty building in an empty place, and they're not going into yeah. the emergency. So it's empty room. on purpose, exactly. And so they're not going into the emergency room, you know. So it it was a very dishonest thing, and it spread quickly, and you know it got picked up by some of the QAnon people, and it was and it it led very heavily to the early narrative that COVID was a hoax. Yeah. Because people saw all this and they were like, well, why aren't there people just dying in those hallways? Because they didn't yeah, understand. I, think, I mean, I think they were expecting like just bodies, like the walking dead or something. Uh, well, you know yeah. I mean? I mean, basically they expected people vomiting blood onto each other and, and falling over. Yeah. And, and you're not going to see that outside of the gift shop, you know, when everything's <laughs> right. locked down. So, you know, so it was it was a dishonest thing that carried very far, and yeah, and I mean, Pizzagate was very similar. Well, right? yeah, like that spread really yeah. fast, and it turned out it to did. be super fake, but then it had real world consequences. You know, that guy, absolutely. Um, what is his name? Edgar Welch. Yep. Who's unfortunately, from, from here, from, from here, yeah, uh, in from Salisbury, North Carolina. You know, listener of the show, local. Yeah. <laughs> um, this dude sees all of this, you know, Pizzagate stuff coming across the internet and, you know, decides one day he's going to stop the pedo ring and he shows up in New York with a yeah. gun outside the pizza shop and gets yeah. tackled by the cops. And they're like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm here to stop the pedophile ring. There's pedos in, in the your basement. basement. Yeah. And, and like, and there's the, no basement. There's yeah, there is no basement. And, and like, this is just, you know, this just really piles more onto that pile of um, the fake spreads fast, inner information, so fast. real or fake spread. No, well, fake information spreads fast. Real information doesn't. And, you know, you get pushed. Like, I don't even really fully understand QAnon. Like, I know more yeah. or less what it is, but I never really got into it. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, I mean, how does that really play in? I mean, I think, you know, way more about QAnon than me. We'll, we'll do a whole QAnon thing and, and okay, I'll, I'll, I'll have to learn about it. I'll walk you through the whole thing. It's, okay. it's, I've been, I've been researching QAnon since early 2018 and, um, kind of very involved with it. Like I was, I was early in on, um, the Reddit, the subreddit and I've, you know, I've personally interviewed a bunch of journalists involved in researching QAnon and, and I've talked to a lot of of the the people who are considered QAnon influencers, but it's um, yeah, it's an interesting thing, and and it feeds back into the whole um, echo chamber because what it is is people hear what they want to hear, you know, and they they build this, they build up this situation where they want to hear that the world is evil and they want to be a part of it because there is a whole situation where. People feel powerless in their day-to-day lives. I was literally just thinking that. And COVID feeds into that because you're told to stay home. You're told you're you're just a piece of the machine. You got to stay home. You have to do what the government tells you and be quiet. Right. You know? And the people who are yelling out about stepping, like wearing a mask is stepping on my rights and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, it's hurtful for some people. I you know? just don't believe that there's a difference between inconvenience and yeah. stepping on your rights or whatever. Like, I mean, I'm all about the rights. Totally agree. You know, we can go into that another time, but 
I'm happy to wear a mask because the mask is for protecting other people, not for well, protecting it's safe. yourself. It's safety, you know? you know? And to me, like, if you're one of those people that's out here like, you know, fuck a mask, you're one of those people who is very clearly not that concerned about other people's safety. Right. You know? Um, and, you know, all of this stuff is just the same thing. Like, if you're one of those people who goes on the internet and shares garbage without fact-checking it, you don't care about the truth. Yeah. But it's so easy to do with the way that it's, I mean, I yeah. have absolutely shared fake shit. hundred percent. Everybody. Sure. Has. Everybody has. But yeah. you know, I've tried to change the way I think about that. So when I see something and I'm like, that's too good to be true. Yeah. You know, doing that little Google of it, you know, is it yeah. really true? It's hard. Most people don't do it. It is. Most people don't. And, and it's interesting as um, I have a lot of conversations a lot of times with people who are very involved with research and QAnon. And I'm, I'm in a vast majority where I feel sympathy with a lot of people who very heavily believe in QAnon, not because I believe in it at all. I don't, it's bullshit. But like what I really feel is that like, I feel like they are people who are not empowered in their own existence and they want a way to feel powerful. And so for them to look at a situation where the entire government that they don't agree with are um, pedophiles and horrible people, and they're the only ones who are in on it, they understand that, that it's a real bad, evil thing. And no matter how much they share it with others, they realize that they're the ones who are warning people. And it gives them a sense of power and it gives them a sense of understanding. Yeah. And it creates a situation where they have, I don't want to say it's a leg up on other people because it's, that's not what it is. It's not them trying to feel more powerful. It's them just trying to feel relevant in their own lives because they're lost in a place where nothing really makes sense and they don't have power over their own existence. I mean, I honestly think most people probably feel that way. Like yeah. my opinion is most people... You know, especially yeah. if you sit down and talk to them, you talk the issues out, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, probably you, you know, can agree on more things than not. Most people are probably, in my opinion, good, decent, understanding, yeah. intelligent people that you can talk to. And if you, you know, present them with a, you know, a good, compelling argument can change their mind and whatever. But at the same time, most people you know, look at this political landscape, what's going on in their lives, especially when yeah. you're in COVID and just feel powerless. Yeah. And then there's this social media thing happening at the same time where it just feel it's so easy to feel powerful by talking shit to what's his name on Reddit or whatever, sure. or yeah. being toxic or sharing stuff that's not true or whatever. Yeah. And it gives you that sense of, you know, power or whatever that you don't have. And so like, especially with what I understand about QAnon, it's very easy to look at all of these politicians, which I mean, I think they're all trash can horrible people, but yeah, do I really believe they're all pedophiles? I mean, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if that was true. Sure. But <laughs> it, it realistically, is it true? like, I don't know, but it's easy yeah. to believe because you, it's so easy to feel politically disenfranchised of course, yeah. even in the most free country in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like, you know, I look at the choices politicians make, and I'm like, 
are you stupid? Yeah. Like, are you stupid? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. I'm, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't make sense to me. A lot of stuff doesn't make sense to me. And I'm just like, you know. I've probably had three or four hundred conversations with deep QAnon believers in the past in the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I like I'm I'm actually having a lot of conversations with these people on 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 social media. And you know, and I'm I'm talking I I'm talking every day with um journalists like people like Mike Rothschild that are that are like really looking into this and 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 people that are really examining this. And you know, when you're talking to them and you really start digging into these thoughts, like there is a thought there where you're thinking like, you know, if these people just went slightly one other direction, it wouldn't be this. Yeah. You know, and you really look at what they're believing. And, you know, a lot of them actually do honestly believe Hillary Clinton peeled babies' faces off and ate it. Uh, that's 100% true. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that uh, video is still out there. That. They're waiting to drop that video. Uh, she, she definitely never uh, denied it. I mean, Clinton Foundation 100% <laughs> assassinates people. Probably. I 100% believe that one. And, <laughs> but... <laughs> Either way, you start talking to these people who like fully believe that and you start like actually talking to them about their lives. Yeah. And I have personally many, many times, at least at least a hundred times, had these conversations where I've shifted to like, are you okay? Like, how's everything going with you? And it turns into them instantly dropping all of that and start talking about they've lost their job and it's really hard. Yeah. And, and so it's really interesting because I think that there's this very easy public f- facade that you can put on that battles that. Yeah. And you that's know? what social media is really, really good at now. Yeah. You know, and so I think it really ropes us back into the initial question we asked about the conspiracy theory is, is this on purpose or is it not? Right. Is it for money? Or is it not? Is it by accident? You know, what's going on? Yeah. Because, you know, everything that we've talked about, it really just creates this, really makes more questions than it does answers. And, yeah, you know, it it's even hard to answer our own question. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the question, the question comes back around to the reason, the reason it's difficult to answer is because I think that the social media companies set up a, exercise of how to be profitable. Yeah. And it fell into this. I mean, I think it started as a exercise in engagement. It's yeah, the same absolutely. it's the same way yeah. that you know, any app or any video game, yeah. they're out there and the number one most important things to them at the end of the day are, you know, if they're a business making money. Yep. And then next to that, you know, daily active users, time on platform, yep. stuff like that. And, you know, before they really made it a money game, it was an exercise in how do we create the it, highest possible engagement? It all comes before the dollars. Like, right. so every question of engagement, of money, they build all of that up before they can start selling. Right. And then once they have you addicted, then they give you the ads. Right. But now we're so inundated with everything having ads. Yeah. Mobile games have ads. Video games have ads. Yeah. You know, they sell you a game and then they sell you the add-ons. You know, like, 
uh, you can buy the game, but you can disable ads if you give us money. Like, you know, like the whole system has just become so inundated in this idea of pay attention to me now, pay attention to me longer, come back, pick your phone up. Here's an ad. Here's a thing. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I really, at the end of the day, I mean, I think it's kind of the, the answer isn't, is it one or the other? It's, it's both. It's all of them. It's all of it together. And it was, it was an exercise in engagement that they just happened to figure out worked really, really well. Right. You know, and the question of whether it's on purposes or not is the part where they started like hiring casino people to figure out the, you know, to bring in that like casino game kind of mentality to how do they keep you coming back and whatever. Um, so I think it was an accident the way that it started, that it magically became popular and then they started figuring out an engagement and then they made it. And then from there they were like, Oh shit, this thing works. Let's yeah. take it to volume 11. Kick it up. Yeah. And then it became on purpose. Yeah. And I think the part where you're saying make it on purpose, like I think that just means they're saying, let's make some money off this. Yeah. Like I don't think they, I don't think there's a single person who worked for any social media company who sat down and thought, you know what? Let's make everyone anxious and upset. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that's an unintended side effect. Absolutely. And, like, and I, I mean, think, and it's horrible and it's evil. Yeah. I mean, I think the algorithm is designed to generate engagement. Yeah. And they want engagement to sell ads and make money. Absolutely. I think the side effects of anxiety, depression, you know, whatever is really an uninformed, an unfortunate, unforeseen side effect that really came on uh, unknowingly. Like even yeah. the guy who designed the like button said he designed it or the team that designed it designed it with the idea that this would be a great way to spread positivity right. across the internet by allowing people to click a button yeah. and say that they like something. But now it's just run away this unintended yeah. consequence of, I have to spend my entire life on platform. I have to show pictures of my boobs yeah. or whatever just to get more likes. I need more likes. I need likes. It's this fever game. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they did not go into it thinking they were going to screw everyone up. No, Nobody could. Nobody no. would. You know, I mean. And, and you would have to be a horrible person. Which you intentionally those, jump into something and be like, let's manipulate right. 400, 300 million and people. And let's not fool ourselves. Those people exist. And, yeah. we're, we're, and we will talk about them in the future. Yeah. But the reality is, I think these were a bunch of tech nerds who came into it. They grabbed onto a couple platforms. Of, you know, Facebook was built by Sean, Sean Parker, right? Like it was built by the one dude. Yeah. Well, yeah, Zuckerberg. Sorry. Sean Parker did MySpace. Um, I don't know. Yeah, so, or no, Sean Parker did Napster. Sorry. He did Napster. Zuckerberg did Facebook. So Zuckerberg built Facebook. He didn't have any of this stuff in his brain, even though he's a weird robot and does whatever he does. Uh, He's like a fleshy version of Data. Really, he is. And like his haircut, I don't know why he's doing these weird Roman haircuts, but like this dude, like there is no moment in his brain where he was like, I'm going to screw up preteen girls. You know, like, and nah, I don't think so. No, I mean, like, I think there's nefarious side issues now. Like, they've changed as people from when the time Facebook started to now, to where you know they sit absolutely. in front of Congress and essentially talk to them like they're stupid, and then sort right. of semi lie to them about what they're doing with their data. Right. You know. So, yeah. No, I mean, 
I yeah. definitely get what you're saying, and I agree. And that leads into today, where those people who are there today look at the algorithm and they think, well, I guess this is only screwing up 12 to 13-year-olds, so we can probably leave it there. Like, those people are the ones screwing stuff up today. Right. Because it's there is no question that it's toxic and horrible. And all of the people that are looking at it and in charge of it should be working dramatically to change these things. Yeah. And every day they're not, those people are pieces of shit. Right. So, I mean... I guess that leads us into the next question is, right. I mean, what do we do now? How do we fix this? Is it yeah. legislation? Because we're starting to see some of that. Yeah. Um, Wyoming or some shit had passed that law about, you know, users within that state have to own their data and yeah. you know, it can't be used in any way that they, yeah. you know, whatever. California is working on a similar law. Um, but like, how, what? I mean, I don't even know what to ask. Like, right, what do we exactly. do? What do, what do we even do? Right, exactly. So, like, I mean, when you look at it at a macro level and what you do today is, I mean, who, who knows? Because the thing is, like we talked about in the, in the first episode, the last episode, is who's going to take responsibility for this? The, the, I mean, I don't think it's going to be the company. No, the companies will never take responsibility for this. Because, They'll be forced to, but does can the government do it? Like, is right. it even capable? Exactly. So, so let's look back at like cigarettes. You know, so like if you look back at um, toba- big tobacco, and you look look back at that, and you look at 1997 when you know big tobacco, all the tobacco companies had a reckoning, and they had to pay Florida something like 11 billion dollars in 1997 and it and it kind of started to change the way people looked at cigarettes that was 1997 like how long were people smoking before that i mean essentially forever for fucking ever like all of history yeah you know people were rolling tobacco thousands of years before that i mean the it Egyptians didn't have all were. the chemicals sprayed on it sure crap, but yeah. like it does now but whatever but yeah i mean it's the same thing and it's unfortunate to me how long it takes for government to make decisions and really enact good, positive, you know, yeah. change that works and whatever. And I mean, we're seeing a lot of that now where it's just like, I mean, in my opinion, the government is broken. They spend more Absolutely. of their time fighting against each other and trying Absolutely. to stop the other guy than actually having people's best interest at heart and trying to do what they think is going to make life better. They're just trying to stop the other guy from doing whatever their thing is. So it's to me, I think, and we touched on this last time, it comes down to personal responsibility. Absolutely. It comes down to you making the choice to, I'm not saying walk away, but know that by engaging, you're doing something bad to yourself. Yeah, and I mean, it It has to be the same way people started looking at things the way they looked at cigarettes. And and people have to look at what they do on social media on a day-to-day basis, and they have to look at how the, it affects their sleep patterns, their interactions, all these different things. And they have to come to terms with it because otherwise there's going down the same road of getting like lung cancer and not seeing what happens with the cigarette companies. You know? Right. It's like being told you have lung cancer and then, being, and then lighting up right there in the yeah. room. But it's interesting because like, so 
as an example, our one last quote or whatever for the show. So here's a good example of why a reason you might want to think about limiting your use, right? So there was a study done where they basically took away people's access to Facebook. And one month away from Facebook led to significant improvements in emotional well-being in an experiment that studied over 1,600 American adults who normally used Facebook for up to one hour a day. And deactivating their Facebook account led to a, I think I already said this, significant increase in emotional well-being, including a reduction in loneliness and an increase in happiness, as well as a significant reduction in their personal polar, political polarization. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it has to be from an, it has to be from an individual you know, right. from, from the beginning and you have to take control of yourself. There's no other option. Right. Nobody else is going to do it for you. Right. So we can do stuff like, I think we mentioned this last show, um, turning off push notifications, Absolutely. turning notifications off altogether. Going black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Going black and white mode, you know, uh, just trying to put your phone down more or, you know, whatever. Like I'm not over here trying to not use it at all. That's not yeah. what I'm saying. But, you know, if I can decrease my usage 1% a week for the next 10 weeks or something or, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I th- I think, you know, there's the whole like, uh, what is it? No, not November where people don't like masturbate for November. I think I pe- have never heard that one. I've heard the... Really? Uh, I've heard the sober no October, shave, no, no shave November. You grow mustache. Yeah, there's no, there's no shave November. I already have a permanent beard, so but. yeah, I, I've had a beard forever. But like yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> but I really think like there should be some sort of movement because you know we have, like I said before, there's the no nut November where people don't like masturbate for November for whatever their reasons are. There's the no shave where people don't shave to like bring awareness to prostate cancer, and there's all these different movements. Uh, sober October, you know, where people, people like, uh, you know, go sober and see how much. They yeah. We need like a no Facebook February or something. Right. Shit. And there's a lot of people that, uh, uh, take January off of drinking and, and I think. Oof, pass. Yeah. Whole January. <laughs> could you imagine? Um, I, yeah. I, I think it would be pretty amazing if there was like a month where we just kind of like, you know, maybe July, not a lot going on, just kind of shut it down. Yeah, most people are on vacation. Live your kids life. Kids are at Y camp or yeah. whatever they're doing, yeah. Do whatever, live your life. Just yeah. enjoy it. I, I know I've definitely thought about it as the, and I think I said this to my wife at some point, I just wanted to have less notifications and be staring at my phone less, especially having in the middle of COVID with a work-from-home yeah. job, um, you know, with, you know, everything that's going on right now with the political scene and just everything everything that's going on it's just like it's such a weight like it just eats away at you right i I looked at her one day and i was like i'm gonna turn all my notifications off on my phone so unless it's an email a text message or a phone call i don't want to know about it and she was like i did that a couple weeks ago and it's been great (laughs) and i was like okay sick i mean don't say anything to me but you know and the point I ended up making to her is I just wanted to spend more time in the real. Yeah. You know, I wanted to live a life in the land of the real. Yeah. And I spent so much time staring at uh, staring at a computer for work, looking at my phone all for day. work and, yeah. and, you know, getting pulled into all of this Facebook and Instagram and, yeah. and, and Reddit garbage that, you know, I don't think it 
really hit me just how much time I was spending in the digital space and that every second I was doing that was time I was not spending in the land of the real. And that to me, like, I mean, I'm only 30 and some change, but you know, I don't want to be 60 and look back on my, you know, 30s and go, man, my 20s were so much better because I spent (laughs) less time on my phone. You know what I mean? Or like get to the part where I finally have a kid and I can't take my face, you know, can't get my eyes off my phone long enough to see their first word or see their first step or miss something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, what's funny is, uh, you know, last week we kind of got deep into like stuff you can do to like put your phone down more. Yeah. And one of the things I started doing was whenever I would walk through the kitchen, I would toss my phone in the utensil drawer and just slam it shut and like just go about the rest of my day because you know during a regular day like a monday tuesday wednesday whatever i'm my laptop is there because i'm working so i'm nearby so slack is open all that stuff is open and i started tossing my phone just in a drawer and ignoring it for work hours oh interesting and i realized like at the end of the week i i pulled up my whole like you know digital well-being stats or whatever yeah and everything was down a lot like yeah like 80% that's and tough to me cuz i definitely have a millennial for a wife and if she texts me and i don't respond i'm literally yeah. i'm i'm dead same same you know and i don't have a work phone either my cell phone is my work yeah. phone so I, like i would love to do that yeah and like i think i i mentioned to jake before uh we started the cast like uh my wife and i went to the mountains the other weekend to just kind of like get away, do some primitive camping and whatever. And at some point while we were up there, I turned my phone off, like powered it down, threw it in my backpack. I didn't look at it for two days. It was great. All right, here's what you need to do. You got to sync your phone to your laptop or your your computer so that you get texts and you see your calls there, but then leave your phone somewhere else. I, I should figure out how to do that. It's it's pretty simple. It's like, it's okay. not a big deal. I know I can get a VM phone because you have you have a Apple. You have like an iPhone, right? Uh, yeah, but yeah. I have a I have a uh, PC. Working oh, there. oh, that's right. But yeah. So anyway, so like, but if you can figure out how to like link that up, and then just like not have your phone, because like what I noticed was down was like stupid Instagram, Reddit, like stuff. I usually don't look. Yeah. I don't look at it off hours because yeah. outside of work hours, I'm with my daughter and my wife and I tend to not look at my phone a lot. So I really like, I realized I was grinding on those stupid sites like during work hours. Yeah. See, my wife's a millennial. So even when we're hanging out, she's on her phone. So <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know. Well, we got we to gotta do something. We got to figure it out. Yeah. Do something. If you have an idea of what we could do to yeah. do better, uh, shoot us an email. Yeah, shoot us an email. The at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. This episode has gotten very long. I think we yeah. bring it to a close now maybe. We're on uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram at uh, the Berluminati, uh 1L. And jump in there. But yeah, guys, so... Thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with another show. Not yeah. sure what that's going to be about yet. But um, yeah, if you guys have anything you want us to talk about or anything like that, shoot us an email. Look us up on the social medias, which clearly we apparently think are the devil. We'll probably ignore. <laughs> we, we, yeah, uh, we will leave you on read. Thank you.
for joining us for this episode of Brew Luminati. Our intro and outro music is written by Dungeness. Want to learn more about the topics we cover and who we are? Join us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Luminati Podcast for behind the scenes content and updates. Do you have mystical powers of insight or just questions, suggestions, and feedback? Reach out to us at thebrewluminati at gmail.com. Are you ready to immerse yourself into the inner circle? Visit patreon.com slash brewluminati podcast. For the same price as a cup of coffee or sandwich you won't remember, you know, because of mind control, you can join the Brewluminati and lift the veil on the true mysteries of the universe. Your membership to the Conclave unlocks access to our secret Discord server, bonus Patreon-only content, behind-the-scenes talks, and much more. Every dollar spent not only helps us reveal the truths of the world, but also frees us to make the show better, weirder, and allows us to go deeper and deeper into the void while funding our next beer run. When we're not talking conspiracies and beer, we're passionate about saving the forgotten puppies and kitties of the world. 10% of every dollar you donate goes directly to the Best Friend Pet Adoption Agency. They are a local 501c3 all-breed, all-foster cat and dog rescue that will save the life of a pet who never had a chance. Keep an eye out because we'll be posting pictures of the lives our listeners save. For more information on Best Friend Pet Adoption, head over to bfpa.org. Join us again next week for another episode of Brew Luminati. We know you will, because again, mind control is real. Thank you.